Melbourne AA Steps Weekend 2018. This is Sharon talking about Step 1. Hi, I'm Sharon, alcoholic. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. David just so beautifully run through, David and Chris, the presentation, thank you for that. When I came to this step, I was bamboozled by it. I didn't conceive myself as being powerless over anything. And I needed to first look at when I made a decision that I would never, ever be powerless over anything. I had to pick a time when I was powerless prior to even picking up a drink in order to even grasp the complexity of why I was powerless over alcohol. And there was a time as a child, a very, very young child, where my parents were at a caravan park and I wandered off collecting shells. And as I collected shells, I became further and further lost. And I went into this sobbing hysteria and I didn't know where I was and I didn't know the name of the caravan park and I didn't know what to do and a kindly person directed me to the police and I drove for the first time in my life absolutely shaking in a police car and uh, and we drove round and round the nearest caravan park until we found my parents and I decided then and there that I would never ever experience anything like that again, that absolute and utter helplessness. I made it it convince myself that I was powerful over everything, so I was very, very delusional about power. And I, when it came to alcohol, I just couldn't even think of, I didn't even know what powerless was. And I had to define every one of those terms. I had to look at powerless, what does that mean? Unmanageability, what does that mean? Because I just did not, in early recovery, understand the word even. And to be powerless is being without power. It's being defenceless. It's being ineffective. It's lacking in strength, power, or authority over alcohol. Then I was able to look at, well, what behaviours show I'm powerless over alcohol? What am I doing in my life at the moment that could give me a clue to some of this powerlessness? And it became obvious through... First, I did examples of my drinking with my sponsor where I pinpointed what I'd done because until I could see myself in this powerlessness, I read the big book... Like it was a a, a trashy novel, I just skimmed through it and I could not identify with the people. Such was the blockage within me. I couldn't connect myself with these these people. So, um, you know, I drank at all hours. I was drinking more... Drinking was more important to me than anything in the world. I was prepared to lose everything in order to drink. I lied about whether I drank and how many times I drank, the quantity, I hid bottles. I drank when no one else was. I brought my own alcohol and I knew there would be none there at the party. I spent money that was for food, petrol, rent on alcohol. I continued to drink when already drunk. I put myself and others at risk by driving when drunk. I denied my irresponsible and dangerous behaviour when drunk. I lied to friends and loved ones to protect my drinking. I continued to drink when friends and loved ones were pleading with me to put down the drink because it was so harmful. 
Then I looked at unmanageability, and that's something that's beyond my ability to influence, to direct, to control, to predict or sustain my life in a satisfactory, required or desired manner, not being able to influence, to control or predict the nature of behaviour of my actions or lifestyle. Step one, it's vitally important in recovery from alcoholism it needs to be fully understood uh, and without fully admitting and accepting powerless over alcohol and the unmanageability that this powerless has produced in my life, um, uh, I have not identified and acknowledged the problem. I needed to, as David alluded to, I needed to work out what was the problem before I could even start solving it. And um, I needed a full and complete admission of my powerless over alcohol, and there had to be no doubt in my mind at all. Now, David referred to the cycle of addiction. Um, during the cycle of addiction, sometimes I would feel restless, irritable, and um, I'd have the reds, and um, sometimes I wouldn't, but always I would proceed on to the remembering of good feelings brought about by the past with drinking, the thought that I could this time drink like a normal person. I'd been doing this for 35 years, my addiction, and I kept on thinking that there is a solution to my drinking. There is a way I can drink like a normal person. I will try X. I will try Y. I just have not found the magical, elusive scenario that will stop me drinking and um, when I then I would get this obsession that David spoke of and it was such an overpowering idea that it would lead me to taking a drink in spite of past problems often I had no recollection of any past problems and then I drink and it stirs up this alcoholic reaction and I have to drink more and then I go into a drinking spree, things are out of control, and I have no choice. More often than not, about eight out of ten times, I would have no choice, and I would follow on in the cycle of addiction. On rare occasions, which bamboozled me, I would do what I wanted to do. Certainly at the beginning, I would only have a couple of drinks or a bottle instead of five bottles. Um, during the spree, when everything's out of control, I would, on coming out of the spree, I would start feeling really sorry for myself and really remorseful, and I would make a promise, a promise that every core of my being believed that I'm, that um, this resolution that I will never, ever drink again, that's it, I'm going to stop once and for all. Um, now, um, only in step one is the problem alcohol and our powerlessness over mention. Neither of those words occur throughout the other steps. So clearly defining the problem enables us to move on to the solution in the following two to 12 steps. Step one brings absolutely no hope, as David was saying. We learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This was the first step of recovery. This needs to be both an intellectual exercise and I needed to get that on a really deep gut level. Every cell of my being needed to believe this concept of powerless. And for decades, as I've said, I could not believe that there wasn't a way out of my dilemma with alcohol. The idea that somehow, someday, um, 
that he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. When I controlled my drinking, I could not enjoy it. And when I enjoyed my drinking, I could not control it, no matter how hard I tried. All of us thought at times that we were regaining of control, but such intervals, usually brief, were followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralisation. Why is it necessary to admit complete defeat? Because unless we hit a rock bottom, we are unlikely to practice the rest of the program. We are unlikely to practice the AA program. For as Bill says in the 12 by 12, who wishes to be rigorously honest and, and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harms done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy carrying AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic, self-centred in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. Unless desperate, very few of us will have the motivation to follow through with the program of recovery and to carry out each step thoroughly and honestly. As David said, this is a step of honesty. The big book says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, and at one point it was um, conceived of, never have we seen a person fail. Examples of my powerlessness over alcohol. I remember experiencing the reads, um, being restless, irritable and discontent when not drinking and looking for an excuse to drink, setting... Um, setting about a scenario to justify my drinking. I had a, a fascination during drinking with lawn mowing. I never did lawn mowing at any other time. It was my husband's job to take care of the garden and I would become obsessed about mowing the lawn and I would manically take the lawn mower and whiz up and down. I would try and outrun my addiction. If I get really, really exhausted, then maybe I'm not going to drink. And I would, my neighbour would comment on how manic I was about. I was just like, ever-ready battery. I was really going. And, um, and then I would come back and I would say to my poor husband who happened to sit there, you bastard, sitting on your bum as you see your wife doing all this work. How dare you? How dare you do this to me? I'm going to have a drink and I would justify having a drink because of that man. That man made me drink. It's all his fault. And another one was promising to be at my sister's wedding and booking the ticket while I was drunk online. And it was in the early days when Tiger's computer system was fairly ordinary for booking and the as I tried to book on a date, it appeared to me in my drunken state to be jumping around all over the screen. And I booked in good faith, thinking that I'd have booked and everything would be okay. I turned up on the day of her wedding at the airport. I'd already booked. I was confident I would get on a plane, only to be told that I booked at an earlier date and the plane had already flown. And all other, all other um, flights with Tiger were booked, so there was no way of me getting a flight that day, the day of her wedding. Then I drove home. I'd been planning on parking at the airport. I drove uh, at the airport parking. I drove home and to commiserate this um, 
Misery, I stopped via the, the bottle shop and picked up a bottle of gin and I proceeded to drink that and was unable to drive interstate to my sister's wedding. I was so inebriated that I'd missed out on my sister's wedding. Uh, another time was um, um, I had um, experienced one day, on first day of my job, I got, I'd been working frantically, trying to put on a good front, and I, they asked me at nine o'clock, I'd been working intensely all day, skipped lunch breaks, went there, um, they invited me out at nine o'clock, went out, became really, really inebriated, and then um, proceeded to become really, really inappropriate with these new work colleagues and uh, um, then got into... Um, then some kindly people disgusted, absolutely disgusted in me, threw me into a taxi and I had to direct them how to get back home. The only problem was, though, that I was so inebriated that I could not remember where I even lived. And the taxi spent about two hours driving around every suburb. Is this where you live, love? Is this where you live? And I couldn't remember. And then as I started sobering up, I was able to direct him home. And uh, I also had a habit with taxi drivers of finding taxi drivers really, really hot. Um, my experience sober is I haven't found any particularly great hot taxi drivers, but I would find them and I'd be, hello there, and I'd be... Uh, quite frisky with a taxi driver, um, you know, I have not done that in, in my recovery, thank God, but, uh, you know, some of the embarrassing things that we do, and another experience was going to the Melbourne Cup, it was, I was um, invited along to a BHP boat cruise down the Yarra with a boyfriend of mine, and at nine o'clock I got greeted with champagne, fabulous idea, champagne at nine in the morning. Part of me thought, like David says, sometimes there's thoughts that I don't know whether this is such a good idea, but I overrode it. I had the glass of champagne and then I proceeded to make a fool of myself and I drank to 4am in the morning. My partner's in the meantime pleading with me to leave because I was becoming once again really incredibly sleazy and explicit and gross, the gross. And I'm not like that in recovery, but, you know, in drinking. And... Um, then I finished up leaving with somebody else. My partner left um, indignant and um, he just left. And um, the problem was so, was that I was so drunk with this particular person that he'd, he'd had enough of me. All his expectations were not going to be met. He threw me in a... Uh, he dro dropped me at Flinders Street Station. And I'm virtually passing out stage. I am really, really paralytic and I have to wait my way back on public... Uh, public transport by now having started to sober up and explain to this man that I love more than anything in the world how this event unfolded and time and time again over 35 years of addiction there would be scenarios like, like this so why when I was about to pick up a drink would my head not go to this why could I not remember what was this what it was more than denial it was some degree of delusion I could not see things as they were and you know other episodes are losing a car in Greensboro shopping plaza where I was hung over and I parked the car and I had paid no attention to the colour of the car park and I'd started shopping downstairs and travelled all the way up to the top where I'd seen a movie 
and I didn't know where the car was and I spent hours searching through all the different levels of car park to find my car. And um, another scenario is, is being at my husband's early parents with the explicit intent to be taking care of these people. And um, it's eight in the morning and I'm popping a bottle of champagne with a woohoo. Uh, as I pop the champagne and look at them, expecting them to think, what a celebration, and they look in absolute horror that a woman would be taking alcohol at eight in the morning, let alone popping a, a champagne. You know, being unable to trust myself to not drink when alone was another problem too. Um, you know, I would stay away from home sometimes as long as I possibly could when the craving got, thinking that maybe if I stayed away from home I would be able to somehow work, work myself through intellectually the, the, the obsession with alcohol, the craving, sorry, the um, mental obsession. And, um, you know, in other times I would buy only one bottle and I'd have no more in the house and that was when my drink driving started. It was one thing to have the house full of alcohol, hidden everywhere and anywhere. Once I started buying only one bottle and I was absolutely and utterly convinced, I would have sworn on my life that I'm only going to drink this one bottle tonight. I'm not going to get any more. I'm not going to drink drive. And I would find myself running out of alcohol and either driving or walking drunk to get some more. And, um, you know, that... Um, I could feel anxious and trapped in a social drinking environment and um, often I wouldn't do my drinking. I would be relatively social in the latter stages of my socialisation and I would continue with my, my drinking at home. So excuse myself, barely, just come in, breeze in, make myself known and then leave. Uh, and this leads on to the unmanageability that's mentioned in the first step. When we act like we are powerless over alcohol and our lives become unmanageable, my life was unmanageable in some areas and not others at the beginning of my drinking, but as time wore on, I was totally and utterly unmanageable. Some areas of the unmanageability, well, first there's the physical component, and David mentioned some of them, the um, hangovers, headaches, vomiting and nausea, getting jittery, having stomach problems, diarrhoea, incontinence during sleep, night disturbances, sweats, injuries, accidents, peripheral neuritis, liver and kidney damage, Korsakoff's, and the list goes on and on and on. And then there's mental aspects of um, the unmanageability, my depression, my anxiety, forgetting names, words, appointments, losing my way in conversations, losing keys, my purse, getting lost, losing focus, unable to learn new skills, disorganised and struggling with routine. Then were my attempts at risk management. Well, I'd do things like walking the streets at night and when Jill, um, the, Jill was um, the, the uh, lady that was killed in Brunswick, I could imagine I was doing that. I was wandering the streets after drinking episodes and walking home alone in the early hours of the morning. Anything could have happened to me. Um, and I would take to um, unsafe... I'd be driving or using machinery when drunk. I'd be doing or saying things while blank, black, in blackout, sometimes dangerous things, and not remembering the next day. I'd be waking up with strangers or in strange places. I'd be passing out in public places and in public transport. I'd be leaving the door of the house unlocked or the car unlocked. 
I'd be waking up with blurred vision and I'd find myself wearing contact lenses and not remembering that I still had my contact lenses on and going to put my second pair on top of the existing ones and wondering why the world was really blurry. If that's not unmanageable, and, uh, and I didn't act responsibly with children, with the elderly and with animals. Relationships, there was a loss of trust and damage to relationship with my partners, family members, close friends, an inability to make new friends and trust people, a reduction of social life, loneliness, isolation, reluctance to join in with anyone, financial, disorganised nation paying bills, credit cards, loans, a lack of interest in anything vaguely to do with money like insurance, super, investing, and overspending, not budgeting for rent, repayments, wasting money and time on alcohol and other addictions. Work, I was often late, I would miss days, I would turn up drunk, hung, drunk, hungover, drinking while at work, drinking before work, drinking during breaks at work. I w wanted to leave but was unable to do so. I would feel unnoticed, uncared for. I developed perfectionistic and obsessive traits. I'd be critical of, of my work environment. I would alienate others from me. I would cheat. I was unreliable and I was unmotivated to do any work. On a spiritual level, the unmanageability showed by being disconnected, hopeless, directionless, aimless, selfish, self-centred, depressed, gloomy, paranoid and wanting to die. How is my drinking different from others? For once I drink, it can become faster, it can become stronger, so I require stronger strengths of alcohol. It becomes more. I act out inappropriately, irresponsibly, I join the big drinkers. I embarrass myself and others, and I do not always notice at the time how embarrassing I'm actually acting. More often than not, I'd be oblivious to how pathetic and embarrassing I was. What is the big book's description of an alcoholic? It talks about that, that we've lost the power of choice, our willpower is non-existent. We're unable to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of recent drinking. We're defenceless against the first drink. This time I will handle myself like other people. I will not go out, in my case, drunk in the car to get more bottles. It won't burn me this time. I don't think at all on some occasions. How did I ever get started? I will stop after a few drinks. What's the use anyway? Step one is done when we know and accept on the deepest level that we can never safely drink again. By successfully doing step one, we accept alcoholism for what it is and break through that denial. Step one breaks the ego and self-centeredness down and it gives us a degree of humility to proceed with the solution which rests in steps two to 12. Thank you. Information about the annual Melbourne AA Steps Weekend is available from www.stepsweekend.aagroup.org.au Thanks for letting us share.